0: Says Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God." Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And, Father, we... Just ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, we pray that, Lord, you would take away that which would hinder or distract our hearts and minds from just being able to receive the testimony of your Spirit's voice speaking to our heart through the Word of God this morning. Lord, give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say and a heart to receive, and we pray now that you would speak to us and that your Spirit would be our teacher. And we ask you to bless your word together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, the Christian life, because it is connected to both the crucifixion and death of Jesus, but as well, just as much, the resurrection of Jesus back from the dead, is intended to be a life about experiencing supernatural power. So important that we realize that the Christian life certainly is to be a sacrificial life. We're to die to ourself just like Jesus died on the cross for our sins and set aside his will. But the Christian life is also to be a life of supernatural power. Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Jesus said, you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And really, that is what our text will be addressing for us today. The backdrop, as it plays certainly into our passage this morning, remember that when a time of great persecution, we're told in Acts chapter 8, came against the church there in Jerusalem, it says people scattered to all different regions as the result of this persecution. And during that time of persecution and scattering, the Lord used that to fulfill his plan to let the gospel then reach the other areas outside of Jerusalem, which were Judea and Samaria as well. We're told that Philip, one of the men who was serving in practical ministry there in the church of Jerusalem, went down to the regions of Samaria during this persecution and he preached Christ to them. And as a result of that, we saw a great spiritual awakening happening in the city where Philip ministered there in Samaria. Multitudes of people's lives were being changed, people were being saved. People were being healed from affliction, set free from demons. We're told in verse 12 that the people believed Philip when he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and multitudes of men and women were being baptized. That is, they were being water baptized as the outward testimony of the salvation experience that had happened in their hearts when they received the gospel message. So a great spiritual awakening is happening in this city where Philip has gone to to minister as many were becoming Christians. Now in light of that, verse 14 then tells us now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard That Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So news of this wonderful work of the Lord that's happening now in the area of Samaria travels back to Jerusalem, and as the result of this, it prompts a visit from a few men among the leadership of the church there in Jerusalem. It says in verse 14, look at it in the text, it says, the apostles heard That is, the leaders, the apostles heard that Samaria had now received the word of God. Now, what happens is people there were hearing the truths of God's word. The message of salvation was being received by them. Take particular note of that word there that they had received the word of God. The word receive is a responsive word of action. It indicates that somebody had an option. You can receive something or you can reject something. Whenever you read the word receive, it's a word that indicates a response. And speaking of making here a response to the hearing of the truth of God's word, the message of salvation that was presented by Philip. And whenever a person hears the word of God, a response is always necessary. It's not even optional. When someone hears the truth of God's word, they must respond. And there's only two responses. Either you believe the truth of God's word, and so therefore you receive it for yourself personally, and that's your response, or you reject God's word. And you choose not to believe it, and you harden your heart and harden your mind and choose not to receive the truth that you've heard declared from God's word. These people here in Samaria, they received the truth of God's word. They received the gospel message that Philip brought to them about salvation through Christ, and as a result of that... It brought salvation to their souls, and that's how it works. When a person receives and believes upon the truth of the gospel message, that's what brings salvation to a person's soul. Paul spoke about this in Ephesians chapter 1, as he spoke to the believers there about who had, those had first trusted in Christ. He said, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your Salvation in whom, having believed, you were then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So, again, Paul makes direct connection that after you heard the word of truth, you received it, you believed upon it, and that was what brought salvation. And that's what's happened here in Samaria. So, exciting news of this great spiritual awakening has traveled now back to Jerusalem and they're hearing in the church, they're, wow, the word of God's impacting Samaria now multitudes are being saved where philip went and preached the gospel and verse 15 says in light of this that now a trip well the end of verse 14 was endeavored to be taken by peter and john two of the leaders were sent to them verse 14 says verse 15 tells us what happens it says and when they had come down to samaria they prayed for them that they might receive the holy spirit For as yet he had fallen upon, notice key word, fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus.' And then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So as these two spiritual leaders, the apostle Peter, the apostle John, go down to the area of Samaria, where this great new spiritual awakening has happened, they're evaluating this new work of the Lord with great excitement. While they're there, they apparently discern, as they're with these new believers, these new converts, that they were not yet experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Certainly they were saved, clearly they had received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of them. The Bible is very clear in the New Testament teaching that when a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they also receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The passage I just read from Ephesians 1 testifies to that truth, that when you open your heart in belief and you receive Jesus' salvation, his forgiveness, you embrace him as your Savior and the Lord over your life. The Bible teaches at that moment, you are then indwelt, sealed, and the Holy Spirit permanently resides within you as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. It's a part of this salvation experience, and the Holy Spirit then becomes our internal helper who works inside of each believer to help us and assist us in our spiritual life. He helps us to have relationship with God. He seals us by the power and preserving strength of God from sin and harm from the devil. The Holy Spirit helps us to become more Christ-like. He helps us to grow in holiness and to overcome sin, to pray in accordance with God's will to just mention a few things he does for us, yet... As we have seen already in our study in the book of Acts, there is beyond that still more and further that a Christian can receive from the Holy Spirit in their spiritual experience. We saw Jesus speak of this in the very first chapter of the book of Acts where he described how we can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That is to receive power for service in our Christian life. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he said, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, he said, upon you. Same word again we find here in our text. So Peter and John, who had experienced this work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they had experienced the baptism with the Holy Spirit coming upon their life, they realized that this had not yet transpired with these new believers in Samaria yet. And when they get down there, they seem to distinguish and recognize this. Verse 16 says that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus at this point. That is referring to salvation. When someone gets saved, they are baptized. We do a water baptism as the outward profession in the name of Christ, they are baptized. And when someone receives Christ, in a sense, spiritually, they are baptized into the body of Christ, the family of God. They're baptized spiritually into the life of Christ where your life becomes unified with Jesus. But yet that is something that happens in salvation. However, verse 16 tells us there in the text that as of yet... Notice, for as of yet, the Holy Spirit had fallen upon none of them, referring to what Jesus talked about, about being baptized with the Spirit, where the Spirit would come upon a person's life to endue them with power from heaven supernaturally. So though the Spirit was in them, he had not yet fallen upon them. Again, we've talked about this before, but for sake of reiteration, Jesus himself, who I think knows more about the Holy Spirit than anyone, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, Jesus spoke of three different relationships or experiences that a person could have with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, Jesus spoke about how the Holy Spirit could be with us. It's para in the Greek. It means to be with or alongside or next to. And the Holy Spirit can be with a person. The Bible tells us that where can we go from God's Spirit? Where can we go from God's presence? God is with us. God is amongst us. Even before you were following Jesus Christ, even before you accepted him as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit was with you. I hope you noticed that. He probably spared your life a few times. He made you feel empty a few times. He helped you realize you were guilty and he made you sense conviction of your sin. He helped you to realize that Jesus Christ was the Savior and the solution that you needed in your life. And the Holy Spirit is with a person prior to conversion even causing them to see their need of Jesus and bring them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Jesus also said in John 14 that he said he's with you and then he said but he shall be second relationship in you. EN in the Greek to mean inside of, to be indwelt with. And Jesus was saying, listen, after I die on the cross, raise from the dead and ascend back into heaven, then I'm going to ask the Father and we are going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you and he will be in you. He'll be your helper. And in the same way Jesus helped his followers as he lived with them and taught them and did things for them, Jesus said, I'm coming back to you, but not in flesh. Now I'll be with you in the presence of the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of God dwells inside of every believer. And if you know Jesus Christ this morning, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. But Jesus also spoke more than once using another Greek preposition, and it's the word we see here in our text this morning, verse 16, Jesus used it himself, that the Holy Spirit could be upon you, that he could fall upon your life. And there it speaks to be on top of, to rest upon. It's where God Causes his spirit to come over or upon a life so that we might be under the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power, that we might be under the complete control of the Spirit. God's ultimate ideal is that we would be fully yielded. That the Holy Spirit would fall upon our life and baptize us and submerge us in the supernatural power of heaven in such a way where we can work and operate and live for Christ and serve the Lord in the power of Of the Holy Spirit. And it seems that as Peter and John came to the area of Samaria, they realized these believers, though they knew Jesus and had the Spirit in them, they'd not yet experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon their life as many of the believers in Jerusalem already had. And Peter and John thought, boy, there's something way more wonderful that you still haven't got to experience yet. And they wanted these believers to experience the fullness of the spirit, being very familiar with this experience themselves, having already enjoyed it in their Christian walk, noticing it's absent from these believers life. At this point, they knew how important and helpful it was for a fruitful Christian experience and to be effective in evangelism to be able to serve Christ in, a, in an influential way. Seeing this need, certainly I'm convinced they explained to these believers that Jesus also spoke about the Holy Spirit coming upon their lives, and they probably taught them more about this, and that God desired to give this gift to them of the fullness of the Spirit if they received it in faith. And I believe they probably explained to them as well that, look, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Spirit that he wants to baptize you with spirit and and fire and power. And as they explain this, we then read verses 15 through 17 here that they then laid hands on them and prayed for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit's baptism in their lives. And verse 17 assures us that those who were prayed for did indeed receive the Holy Spirit in this way, that is, the hand of the Lord came upon them in power. And a supernatural power from God from heaven's realm was endowing them with power from on high. They were receiving divine enablement. And here we see in our text this morning one of the ways whereby people can indeed receive this baptism with the Spirit of God whereby the Holy Spirit can fall upon a person's life, and that is, as we see in verses 15 to 17 here, by experiencing it through another believer, another Spirit-filled believer, perhaps a spiritual leader, laying hands upon our life and praying for us together in faith that the Holy Spirit would come upon our lives and asking in agreement, Lord, even as my hand is upon this person, we just pray that your hand would be upon their life, that your spirit would just baptize them and come upon their life in power and fill them with the fullness of all that you intend for them to experience. And in response to believing prayer for another as the hand of the Lord comes upon us as someone's hand is praying over us, that is one of the ways we find scripturally that this experience of being baptized with the Spirit can happen in our lives. You know, and perhaps this morning you are here and perhaps this may indeed be an experience that you are in need of in your own Christian life. Maybe you're here this morning and you love the Lord and you serve Jesus and the Holy Spirit's working inside your life and he's helping you in different ways in your life, but maybe in your spiritual life you sense a a lack of power And you desire a greater spiritual dynamic in your life. You feel anemic or weak in some ways spiritually and maybe you have a longing for greater power in your spiritual experience. Maybe to overcome sin in your life. Or maybe to be more effective in sharing your faith and evangelizing and leading people to Christ. Or maybe to serve the Lord with a greater sense of influence and impact or to have more love for people in your heart because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Well, look, the Bible says in Zechariah 4, not by might or by human power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Again, Jesus said that we would receive dynamic power, dynamite-like power, when the spirit comes, he said, same word as here, upon us. And it says here, but they realized the Spirit had not yet fallen upon them, so they prayed for them, laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit in this way. Look, perhaps you're here today and you're doing okay. You're existing and functioning spiritually, and you're serving the Lord, yet you're not really as fruitful and influential for Christ as you want to be, or as you could be. Well, let me encourage you, just like Peter and John did these believers, let me propose to you perhaps what you need today today, is for the Holy Spirit to come upon your life. Maybe what you need is to be baptized with the Spirit, and my encouragement to you is, why not be responsive to the Lord? Why would you not want all He has available to you to experience it in its fullness? Well, verse 18 then goes on to say, when Simon saw this happen, that through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon witnesses all this taking place, and unfortunately, as we see here, he responds wrongly. Now, this is where it's important to remember the context of where we were last time. Remember, Simon, we saw in his past life, was a powerful sorcerer and magician. It tells us in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 8, Uh, or excuse me 9 and 10 that there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery claiming he was someone great and everyone gave him heed saying this man's the great power of God so this was Simon's background but then Philip comes to Samaria where Simon has great sway over the people as a sorcerer and he comes to the area and he's preaching Christ and the true power of God is happening and miracles are taking place and demons are being cast out and people are being delivered from spiritual deception and lives are being transformed by the power of christ and people are now following jesus and it appears according to verse 13 that even simon himself with this very dark background and spiritual deception is as well impacted by the power of christ because verse 13 says then simon himself also believed when he, and he was baptized and continuing to Philip, and he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So as the apostles come, they're preaching Christ. It seems Simon as well is impacted by the power of the Spirit of God, embraces Christ and is now here present when Peter and John show up. He's there with the believers he perhaps sees this process going on of them praying for people and the Spirit falling upon people's lives. And it says, Simon saw, verse 18, he saw that through the laying on of hands that the Spirit was given in this way. Interesting, Simon saw. What did he see? I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us. But he saw something. In other words, it was evident when people were being baptized with the Spirit. He saw something transition and change in the lives of these believers. But then unfortunately, as we see in our text, something unfortunate happens. Clearly misunderstanding what's going on, struggling with impure motives that existed in Simon's heart, Simon becomes desirous to be able to do what he thought the apostles could. He thought as he watched this going on, assuming that the disciples, or excuse me, the apostles possessed some Sort of supernatural power, and that they somehow were able through their practices to convert spiritual power upon people. It was almost as if in his mind these were like God's magicians. Wow! Through their practices, they can convert this supernatural power on people, and he assumed that this was something they possessed and were giving. And still being influenced to some degree by that old dark way of life and magicians and sorcery who in that day, as they do in this day, magicians at times, one magician will ask to purchase the rights of a trick from another magician because I want to be able to do that same trick. And Simon here, kind of being influenced by his old patterns, carnally offers them money desiring to buy this spiritual capacity. He says, verse 19, give me this power also on whom I lay my hands, they might receive the Holy Spirit. So obviously, very fleshly, carnal response here of Simon in this way, revealing his heart's off target. He wants to give them money to buy God's power. He wants to offer them something in exchange so that he could do this same thing he saw Peter and John do because he wants to seem important like Peter and John. He wants to seem powerful, and Simon's pride, I believe, made him enjoy being somebody who looked powerful and important. Now, due to this event... There are some, due to that event of Simon there saying those things, and Peter's very strong rebuke in the verses afterwards, there are some Bible teachers who interpret and see this section showing that Simon was not a real Christian. And they view these verses in light of this Simon being exposed as a false believer, and they believe verse 13, describing Simon believing and being baptized and amazed and so forth, was really just an outward profession of faith. In other words, their interpretation of this because of these things is he wasn't genuinely converted. It was just an outward profession of faith, and he went through the water baptism, and he's hanging around the Christians, but it was all with an ulterior motive, and that's now proved. There it is. Simon is a false convert. Now, let me just say, that could be correct, and I think there's some credibility to that train of thought. At the end of the day, only God knows someone's heart ultimately, And if that were true of Simon, that this was just a profession of faith and he's not genuinely a genuine converted Christian, if you prefer to hold that view, it's not a deal breaker spiritually. You can interpret the text that way if you find that be the right idea there. And if that were the case, then Simon reminds us certainly and warns us of the danger of fake Christians. And that does exist. People who do make an outward profession of faith and maybe they pray a prayer or they go through religious activities or uh, even maybe get water baptized. But yet nothing's genuinely ever happened in their heart. And they may dwell among God's people and certainly all the while they've never truly been saved, but yet the Holy Spirit knows the truth and the Holy Spirit does often then expose a person as not having had a genuine conversion. And so if you want to believe that, that's your prerogative. However, there are other Bible teachers, and I tend to fall into this camp, that believe that Simon was genuinely saved and that he did get converted. Uh, To me, as I read verse 13, in the overall context of the flow of the passage from chapter 8, verse 1 to the end, I see there the Holy Spirit, I believe, emphasizing in connection to the conversions of many in Samaria. Verse 12 describes many being saved. And then verse 13 adds, and Simon also believed. Again, the word "believed" there in verse 13 is the exact same Greek word as believed in verse 12. And to me, I see there the emphasis on the word also, that is just like others. Simon also believed. I also personally don't believe that Philip, being a very discerning, useful vessel of the Lord, would have, if he sensed Simon was a fake Christian, water baptized him together with the rest of the believers. And let me also say, Simon, certainly, you can look at him there as a potential young convert. He exposes his heart with some real issues in it, some real filth in there still a lot of pride and some unhealthy things. Peter's going to expose more of that, and I know Peter does give him in the text a very strong rebuke, but let's all remember that even after a person gets saved, it's a process for God to change people. And even after somebody genuinely accepts Jesus Christ, it takes God a little while sometimes to help them separate from their old patterns, their old sins, their old ways of life. God got Israel out of Egypt immediately. But it took God a little while to get Egypt out of their hearts. And for all of us, it's a process when God saves a person. It's a continual process of the Spirit working inside us to overcome sin, to grow and mature, to gain proper understandings. And certainly new believers are very zealous... Very excited, but oftentimes when somebody's a brand new Christian, they're also a little rough around the edges. And a lot of times they kind of have some old patterns still. Maybe they're not real familiar with the Word of God and its truths, so many times they don't even realize there are areas of sin until those things are exposed to them, until they're encouraged and helped to overcome. And let me just say the presence of things like wrong motives, that's clear in Simon's heart, bad desires struggles with sin here's a news flash. those things do exist in real christians i've met real christians with wrong heart motives i've met real christians with impure desires in their hearts i've met genuinely converted christians who have struggles with sin and need those things revealed and repented of in fact For example, read Revelation 2 and 3 this week as Jesus addresses seven different churches of Christians and he repeatedly identifies sinful actions, attitudes, and behaviors that were existence among those churches. And he says this word, repent. Repent of that stuff. Look, let us never forget, repentance is not just a word for the unsaved. It's the ongoing responsibility of every Christian to get right with God sometimes, to grow and to overcome certain things. In light of that, let me just say, I'm not going to be indicting Simon myself as a fake Christian. I see him as a genuine brand new believer myself personally. I'm okay to view him that way. You're free to disagree. I see him as a genuine new convert with a lot of worldliness still who came out of a really dark background of being a sorcerer and a magician and a a deceiver in the ways that he once lived and somebody who had power over all these people kind of having sway over them and like many of us, he needs the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome some of that stuff. And he needs to be able to overcome it and interpreting the text that way as we go through it now with Peter's rebuke, here's what also that does for me. It lets the majority of us in this room who are genuine believers not ignore the rest of the text. Because if that's just for fake Christians, well, God would never say to Tony, your heart's not right, son. You better repent of that wicked attitude. Look, when I interpret it as a believer, then that strong word of rebuke is something I can evaluate my own life with. And I can take it to heart for myself, So again, Simon offers this money. Give me, he says, I'll pay you for it, this power that whoever I lay my hands on can receive and be baptized with the Spirit. Verse 20, Peter, a Spirit-filled believer and leader, says to him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. He says, verse 21, you have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. So Peter strongly rebukes this very carnal and very worldly mindset, this very sinful, fleshly attitude. And Peter says to him, look, God doesn't need and he doesn't want your money. And you can't buy God off. Maybe you could buy everybody else off. You can't bribe God. He's not a cosmic genie. You're not going to offer him something somehow. He's going to give you position or power. Peter says that his money is perishable and temporary, just like every human being is. And he says, God has no interest in that. Peter indicates God can't be bought off and that God doesn't give his gifts or his power or position to people who somehow can kind of pay God off through their works or their efforts or their impressive skills. If somehow God's up in heaven going, what What? do you see that guy's resume? Man, he can talk. I'm up. Woo, we're hiring him. He can woo a crowd. That's not how God works. God displays his power through weak vessels. By grace, he chooses whoever he wants to choose. He uses the weak things of the world, and it's a total act of the grace. Grace of God, Paul said, but by the grace of God. There go I, and Paul said, by the grace of God. I am what I am. Even Paul, who was greatly used of the Lord, it has nothing to do with what we present to God. It's what we all receive from God. And not only is God on a look at that; God's not looking for people here like Simon's kind of behaving, who try to acquire status or let me work the system so I can climb the chain or somehow you know be a greater vessel or more important person in the church. Petri Peter says there in verse. Uh, 20 he says excuse me verse 21 you have neither part nor portion in this matter he says you're not going to be allowed to participate in this matter of experiencing the greater fullness of the spirit at all right now what the rest of these believers are experiencing he's saying you're not even going to be able to experience it because of your wrong heart attitude and he says regarding the lord's ministry you're not going to be permitted to serve in the lord's ministry at this time because peter's saying your view of god's work is all messed up man You're not going to have participation in God's work, and these things are hindering, Peter's going to say, you from having a participation in the power of God's Spirit. His old worldly patterns were prohibiting him spiritually. Peter identifies the problem in the end of verse 21. He says, here's why, your heart is not right in the sight of God. That his heart wasn't in a right condition. God could see the polluting influences inside of Simon's heart and his actions were just revealing that his heart was not right. And again, God always weighs the heart and God always works in the heart. In fact, the Bible teaches us that God relates to us based upon the condition of our heart. Two times in the New Testament, we read that God resists or opposes the proud and he gives grace to, to the humble what determines whether God's going to resist and oppose us or God's going to be gracious to us and help us and bless us heart condition resist the proud heart condition gives grace to the humble heart condition Jesus said blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God again in other words the heart condition when the heart's in a pure condition It allows a person to see revelation spiritually. He says, when your heart is pure, then you'll see the things of God. When your heart's impure, it will obstruct your perspective. If your heart's not right, your perspective's never going to be right. You're always going to have on shaded glasses. You may justify it, but it's your impure heart condition that's distorting your perspective. And this is what Peter is trying to address. If someone's heart's not right in God's sight, God must first address the heart condition. That's number one priority. I bring this up because perhaps this morning, you're here today, and could it be possible that the Lord could be making that assessment of you? Could it be possible that as the Lord looks at you, that he would say something like this to you this morning? In this matter, you fill in the blank. In this matter in your life, in this matter that's going on, in this matter, your heart is not right in the sight of God. It may be right in your sight, it may be right in the sight of everybody you got on your team when you explained to them what's going on, but God may be saying, your heart is not right in the sight of God. Because God sees things from a pure perspective. And if so, what an important revelation. When God says something like that to me, I need to hear that. And I need to heed that. And I need to be open to the Lord's rebuke and humbly receive his correction. Well, verse 22, Peter then says, Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps, notice, the thought of your heart may be forgiven you again it wasn't his his whole sin issue it was the thought of his heart he was having wrong heart attitudes wrong thoughts going through his life as we all do at times he says for i see verse 23 that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity so peter's given revelation again how by the holy spirit what's happening inside of simon's heart by the holy spirit working inside of peter He sees this and he exhorts him now to repent and seek God's forgiveness. How does Peter know what's going on inside of his heart to indict him in such a clear way? By the Spirit of God, I believe, helping him operate in the gift of the discerning of spirits. Peter is receiving revelation from the Spirit that something deeper is going on inside of this man's heart. That He's poisoned by something that's bound his heart. Again, think of the flow of the text in our story before Philip comes to town in Samaria, who's, who, who at this time is Simon? Before Philip shows up, Simon is the man, right? It said everybody's giving heed to him. He has sway over the whole town. People are saying, you are the great power of God. You don't think Simon's liking that? He's got an ego like everybody else. I'm the great power of God. And then all of a sudden... The gospel comes to town, people start getting saved, and all of a sudden people stop following Simon. They're not no longer doing what Simon says. <coughs> uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> now they're doing what Jesus says. But guess what? Simon's a human being just like you and I. And now they're all following Jesus and following servants of the Lord Jesus. And guess what that means for Simon? He's losing his following he's not the important guy on campus anymore. And I think his heart and pride is stung and offended by that. That wounds his pride as a man. And inwardly, he's struggling with jealousy and he had become very bitter over this and his heart had been poisoned by bitterness due to what happened to him. And he's bound and tied up within with sin polluting and controlling him aside. His heart had become toxic with the bitter effects of what had happened to him. And it was now affecting his attitude. And sometimes, look, this can happen to us as people. Some event happens in our life and it wounds our pride. And it offends us in some way. And we become envious and bitter. And then over time, we start to become toxic as a person. And we literally start to become poisoned. Inside, as the result of our pride being wounded, and that begins to pollute your attitude and your thoughts about everything and everyone, and the way that you speak with your words and your perspective on everything. And like poison, it's causing a harmful and horrible symptomatic effect in everything that you do. And ultimately, that poison condition can destroy and ruin you, and those poisoned by bitterness can literally become bound by that kind of sin. I'll tell you, that's a sin that really can bind a person's life and shackle them. And it can just cause a person to be so hindered and robbed from living free. And and it holds them back from experiencing God's best. and, And that inner sin of bitterness begins to quench the work of God's Spirit inside of a person's heart. Look, that being said, The reality is we can all become poisoned and bound by any form of sin, whether it's bitterness or anything else. The question, more importantly, perhaps, is what do we do when our hearts become toxic, when we become poisoned by some sin, binding or controlling? What do we do if we've allowed ourselves to be bound or poisoned by any sin? Well, Peter gives some direct and hard truth which needed counsel. Peter says, verse 22, repent of this your wickedness and pray if perhaps God will forgive the thought of your heart inside. Again, the word repent means to have a change of mind and a change of the way you think about something currently that leads to a change of behavior, that you have so changed your mind. Now you just feel bad about it. Oh, right, man, I really feel bad. No, that's just called remorse. Oh, I really, that's remorse. That's, that's good. But you can be remorseful but never Repent. People go to prisons. They're remorseful. They come back out. They repeat their crimes. They never repented. Repentance is you have a complete change of mind. I have been completely wrong. The way I've thought about this, the way I've acted about this, the way I've done this, I've been completely wrong. I change my mind. I change the way I think, and I'm therefore going to behave differently. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. The idea is you agree with God's word that your mindset has been wrong and you need to change your mindset. You agree with God's word that what you've been doing is wrong, and you make a U-turn, you go the opposite way. You stop justifying going east, and you turn around and you start going west, the complete opposite direction. That's what biblical repentance is. And you pray and ask God to forgive you, as Peter says here, that you apologize to God for the error of your ways. Lord, I'm sorry. I've been so wrong, Lord. And you actually apologize to God and you seek God's forgiveness because you realize that you have been sinful and wrong in those things. Or verse 24, when Peter gives this rebuke, it says, Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things happen which you've spoken may come upon me. So clearly it appears Simon is pretty humbled and concerned by the strong rebuke that Peter gives. Because now here we find him instead of wanting to be powerful, He's humbly asking, like a little child, for Peter to help him now. There's a totally different mindset. He's fearful of the consequences of his sinful actions, and he humbly asks that even as Peter prayed for others, that he would now pray for him. He realizes he's wrong, he's concerned about the consequences. And take notice, rather than wanting now to have God's power and seem important, he's genuinely afraid of God's power. Talk about the opposite. I'm afraid of what God's power is going to do to me. Did I cross some line? Peter, you're a leader. Would you please pray for me? Again, James 5 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is something we do at times biblically. We acknowledge our sin to another person and we say, would you pray for me? I know Jesus alone can forgive me, but would you pray God will heal my heart? Pray that God will change my heart. And so we come to Jesus for forgiveness of sin, but the Bible teaches we should go to one another to ask people to pray for us for freedom from sin, to be delivered from its power and control over our lives. Well, verse 25, the text concludes saying, So when they, Peter and John, had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages. Of the Samaritans, So having seen evidence of the Spirit's power converting souls in Samaria, Peter and John stick around for a little while, it says, and they preach the word, verse 25 says, to these new converts. Notice, they did not just pray for the baptism with the Spirit alone. They didn't say, okay, that's the most important part that we prayed, you've been baptized with the Spirit We're going to now depart. It says in verse 25, these two mature, experienced spiritual leaders, they spent some time there preaching and teaching the word of God to them, no doubt to help them get further grounded in their faith to become more established, to help them be rooted. Notice these spiritual leaders understood that spiritual maturity and development is not just dependent upon spiritual experiences, it's also dependent upon the exposition of the truth of God's word to help people grow and mature and be rooted and established in the truth. Because if not, then spiritual experiences can get off track. And they saw the value of God's spirit working powerfully through God's word to change hearts. That's why on the trip home as well, it says in verse 25 that they went through other areas doing missionary evangelism. As they were returning home, they were preaching the gospel in all kinds of villages of the Samaritans knowing the gospel message is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes it. Again, notice it's the power of salvation to those who believe. You can preach the gospel message But if people don't believe it, there's no power for salvation. They have to choose to believe it because if they reject it and they don't add faith to the gospel message, then they're rejecting the power of God to save their soul. A person must believe. They must choose to believe and receive the truths of the gospel so that the power of salvation can happen in their hearts. You know, this passage shows us the power of God's spirit at work. The Holy Spirit empowering believers for a fuller and deeper Christian experience. Peter giving great boldness in his speech. Where did that boldness come from? From Peter to rebuke in the way that he did there and give good godly counsel. It came from the power of the Spirit helping him discern what needed to be recognized and speak the things that he did that were difficult. The Spirit reveals and rebukes wrong heart conditions. You know, one of my favorite songs, a lot of times we sing it on Wednesday evenings, and I think it's really a song to be sung like a prayer, is where the Bible you know, kind of gives to us this song that I believe personally where it came from, where we sing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. That's what we need to pray, that the Spirit would fall upon our lives to bring the fullness of what God wants. Amen?